this podcast is recorded on the 6th of May 2022. The situation in and around Ukraine is developing at an extreme pace. Russia is still at war with Ukraine, but most hostilities are now taking place in the southern and eastern parts of Ukraine, near the border of the two countries. In terms of migration, which is what we at ICMPD are dealing with, we see the following development. 5.7 million people have left the country since the start of the war, and even more are internally displaced. This makes it the fastest growing displacement crisis that Europe has witnessed since World War II. Once those people fleeing the war are in relative safety in neighboring countries, the question arises how their integration will look like in the short, medium and long term. So today we will be talking about the integration of refugees from Ukraine in the EU, its challenges for both people and receiving countries. My name is Elizabeth Minkoff and you are listening to the ICMPD Migration Podcast. To shed light on the challenges for both refugees and EU countries, I have two guests with me who are very familiar with the topic and have closely monitored the situation in and around Ukraine for the last months. Justina Segesh Frelak, a senior policy advisor for legal migration and integration at ICMPD, is my guest today. Welcome, Justina. Hello. And our second guest is Caitlin Katsiafikas, policy analyst at ICMPD. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's dive right in. Recently, you published an article where you give an overview of all the factors that concern the integration of Ukrainian refugees. Can you give us a summary? What are the biggest challenges in the current situation? Okay. So what we see right now in the main destination countries is that refugees uh, usually go to the biggest agglomerations or prefer to stay close to the border. As a result, many big cities in countries like Poland or Czech Republic have reached their capacities. To give you some um, concrete examples, in case of Poland, Ukrainian refugees and those who had migrated before constitute around 20% of population of Krakow or Warsaw. I'm, I'm mentioning this concentration because that creates uh, huge issues when it comes to accommodation and housing. Housing is becoming really critical challenge that, that should be addressed because it's obvious, without a place uh, to live, no one thinks about education, no one thinks about work. So what we've seen is that many cities actually moved to ready reception centers, others uh, rely on hotels or guest houses. In Slovakia, again in Poland, uh, authorities are offering some money to private owners who, who host um, uh, people from, from Ukraine. So here, private sector, private uh, citizens are stepping uh, up to offer support. But this is, this is critical in the first days after people arrive in first weeks after the arrival 
but uh, but it's not sustainable there is a re real need for for more sustainable more strategic uh, solutions when it comes to short and long term housing uh, needs another key immediate issue is regarding temporary protection and I know our colleague spoke um, about the triggering of the temporary protection directive in a previous podcast, but this is really important because temporary protection provides quick access to essential integration-related services, including education, housing, as Justina mentioned, and healthcare, and it gives the right to work as well. And so we know from past experience that acting early is really key to supporting successful inclusion. Uh, so registering for this temporary protection is an immediate need for newcomers, and an average of around uh, 300,000 people fleeing Ukraine are applying for temporary protection each week in an EU country, Norway or Switzerland. And by the last week in April, 2.3 million had registered for temporary protection, according to the EU asylum agency. So this is roughly 44% of those who left. Why is there such a gap between those who left and the ones who have registered? Is there any explanation for that? I think partly is just that this is a, a big bureaucratic undertaking to register so many people so quickly. Another question is, is whether people will decide to apply for asylum instead of temporary protection. Um, temporary protection is, is faster, of course. Um, right now, I believe it's uh, most people are able to stay for around one year and it's renewable. Mm -hmm. um, so I think people perhaps are, are weighing their options. I think another reason could be just dealing with so many things when, when you're first arriving, maybe it takes you a little time to, right. to go through the steps. Um, but uh, that's, a, that's a good question. That's something we'll continue to, right. to be looking at. Okay. Anything you want to add, Justina? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, Katie, you mentioned that they, they haven't taken the final decisions yet. So someone arrived to Poland, to Rzeszów, a city nearby uh, uh, Ukraine, and is now thinking whether I should stay here in Rzeszów or maybe I should move to Berlin or even further because my family is actually in Portugal, but I don't know Portuguese. So this is, and they still have a right to do it. It's 90 days to, to, to take the decision be, before uh, registration. Another issue is that those who have registered already had to do it because of uh, education, enrolling uh, uh, kids, uh, necessity to get uh, social support, etc. Others are waiting. Okay, let's move on now. Um, who is it that is actually coming? What are the main statistical average differences compared to the refugees that fled Syria uh, and came to Europe in 2015? Um, current, uh, current arrivals are indeed unique if we compare them with, with previous arrivals. It's, uh, it's mostly women, children, many children below 14 and elderly people. So that's, that's the big, big distinction. Uh, why is this situation? Because uh, uh, men, Ukrainian men cannot leave because they, they have to fight. To give you some ex concrete examples, when, when we look at registrations in Poland, it's uh, actually women and children constitute 90% wow, of all okay. registrations. So it's close to even close to 100%. Uh, it's worth mentioning here, because we keep on saying Ukrainian refugees, that it's not only Ukrainian citizens who mm -hmm. are coming. Mm -hmm. It's also refugees, uh, asylum seekers uh, who 
lived in Ukraine when when war uh, started. It's many international students uh, from Africa or Asia. Uh, it's also economic migrants uh, that that are coming. And what happens to those? Maybe Caitlin, do you have what happens to those uh, other migrants that are non-Ukrainians? Because I believe there are some differences in how they're treated, right? Yes. So in the in the first days, we did see uh, media reports uh, that uh, non-Ukrainian nationals, some of them, were having difficulties crossing into into the EU. Uh, I think in the the medium and longer term, the question is now whether. Uh, students, workers, uh, refugees, asylum seekers who were previously in Ukraine, whether they um, decide they would like to try to stay in the EU, in which case uh, the temporary protection directive may cover them. It depends on the, the member state and how they implement the directive. Um, or they could you know, try to find other options such as applying for asylum uh, to stay. Or the other question, of course, the other option is whether they wish to return to their home country um, to, to take up a job or, or study there as well. Uh, so it's definitely um, something important to keep in mind uh, in our discussion today. Um, but of course, the, I would say the majority of people coming uh, are, are Ukrainian mm -hmm. nationals right okay. now that we see. Right. There's one other thing I wanted to mention as we talk about uh, who's coming and, and where they're going. Justina mentioned earlier a bit uh, the decision making, do I wish to stay or, or move on? Uh, what's rather unique here is that uh, Ukrainians enjoyed visa-free travel prior to the conflicts. And this visa-free regime and the temporary protection directive allow Ukrainians to choose uh, in which member state they'd like to live. So they can uh, join their networks, make use of their language skills, follow job opportunities. Uh, so we see, as, as Justina mentioned, that, that most are staying in neighboring countries. Um, um, but that member states that already had sizable Ukrainian communities before the war are also seeing larger numbers of newcomers from the country and, and some other countries as well. And that's probably something that has been um, the case for other refugee movements as well. A lot of people do want to uh, join their networks uh, or, or, of course, go somewhere where they have uh, op options for a more sustainable future. Uh, but actually, in, in Europe, it can be quite difficult. Um, this is something we were looking at from one of our research projects, uh, Traffic, Transnational Figurations of Displacement, this three-year EU-funded research project. We're now coming to a close. And um, we did see in Europe and in other regions we studied that uh, a lot of uh, displaced people do have connections, whether it's locally, nationally, or transnationally even. Um, and they do often want to join family or friends, um, and sometimes these family and friends are able to offer uh, logistical, emotional, or financial support, but many times um, they're not able to move with, you know, across countries, even if they're already in the EU, um, and even if they already have refugee status. So this actually, uh, what we see now is, is something that we uh, were looking at in the project, something, approach that we recommended was that we would like to see more mobility and more people being allowed to join their networks to have these sustainable mm -hmm. futures. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've already mentioned housing as a key concern. Employment is another major concern if you look at the mid and long term uh, integration efforts. So looking at the current labor market in the EU, what are the prospects for Ukrainians, uh, Justina? Mm -hmm. Uh, employers uh, in a number of uh, member states, especially in the frontline uh, countries, uh, remain rather optimistic regarding the absorption capacities of, of uh, local labor markets. But I would say that it's easier said than, um, than done. 
Why? Because labor uh, labor market shortages might mean that there are more opportunities. That's for mm-hmm. sure. However, and we mentioned that already, not everyone might be able to enter labor market so easily. It's um, female refugees. Many of them are sole, sole caregivers of their children, meaning that proper child care, but also elderly care in many cases might be a precondition of, of successful integration into the labor market. On one hand, the, the high levels of education of Ukrainian popula- population in general, but also the proximity of uh, Ukrainian education system to EU might mean that the integration would be easier. However, right. we have uh, language barriers because, of course, in Poland, oh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, it might be easier to learn the language. In Lithuania, Latvia, maybe they can use simply Russian, but it's not the case in Germany or Spain. So it's, it's language barriers. But it's also the profile of people who are coming because what we observe is that the... Uh, skills labor shortages in each member states are uh, very specific. So it means that the, the, these people might simply do not match the demand on the on the side of uh, employers. Do you have any um, good practices for labor market integration of refugees? Sure. Uh, I think it's interesting that especially since uh, 2015, Europe has recognized the importance of validating the skills uh, that refugees have quickly and early on. Uh, so recognizing that the foreign qualifications so that they're able to capitalize on their skills in European labor markets and also meet, meet labor needs here in Europe. And so, for instance, Sweden implemented fast track programs to speed up access to the labor market for immigrants arriving who, who were filling jobs in industries with labor shortages. So, for instance, uh, social workers, teachers, chefs. So these combined uh, job related language training, early skills assessments, recognition of credentials, uh, guidance about further training and study and job matching. We also saw increased flexibility during the COVID-19 pandemic when several countries relaxed uh, travel restrictions and or credential requirements to meet the need for essential workers in healthcare and agriculture in particular. So these approaches uh, can provide inspiration, I think, for the current situation. And this is something that we're currently looking at here at ICMPD. Um, it's also interesting to see, you know, the, the 2015-16 spike in arrivals and the pandemic both spurred the adoption of these more flexible approaches. And we do already see this again uh, in the face of, of large-scale displacement to the EU now. Uh, so Poland, for instance, uh, now gives doctors or dentists from Ukraine a conditional license to practice a medical profession without full recognition of their diploma. And in Lithuania, Ukrainian teachers can teach for two years without needing to be able to teach in Lithuanian language. Uh, so these measures are important not only for uh, helping newcomers earn a living, they're also important for meeting labor needs and receiving economies and communities. In some cases, like with the Ukrainian teachers in Lithuania, they can help scale up services for newcomers by contributing their language skills alongside other experience they have, uh, but their impact also goes beyond this. Does that mean, on the other hand, that the EU overall is now better prepared to host this large number of refugees than they used to be? Did they learn, did the EU learn from past experiences from your perspective? I think I think this uh, these fast tracks, for instance, um, and these flexible approaches are uh, indicative of, of 
the progress that has been made and the lessons I think learned from the past. So I think I think it's also good that we're acting. Uh, Europe is acting so quickly with the the temporary protection directive. I think that's a very very good sign. Um, of course, there's there's always challenges moving and and moving your life to a new place is always always a challenge. Um, but I think. I think it's a promising start for sure. There is, of course, uh, but Katie, you mentioned that indeed there there is a huge amount of experience, huge amount of, of practical knowledge in uh, in the member states. Uh, however, it's not all member states that have this knowledge because not all of them experience large inflows. Not all of them integrated huge numbers of migrants and refugees uh, before so that's the that's the uh, the situation that we face now frontline countries have limited experience with integration and whereas they've been working on a comprehensive migration policies there is still a lot to improve and learn when it comes to integration another issue because Caitlin mentioned good practices is that we are good in producing good or best practices but there is also an issue of transferability so this mm -hmm. is what we have to still learn how to learn from each other and this is actually another uh, project called spring that um, ICMPT is is now working on we want to take a stock of what we learned, what we know, and actually how to share it with, with others. That sounds very promising. Um, I have another question regarding uh, diaspora and how they are actually adding uh, to the integration of uh, Ukrainian uh, refugees these days. Do you have any experience uh, with that group, let's say? What what uh, what we what we see is that indeed um, diaspora organizations, diaspora members, are extremely active uh, when it comes to humanitarian support, uh, support directly in in Ukraine, but also in the area of of uh, reception of of newcomers, and indeed in in case of Ukrainian citizens. The community is huge. Uh, for example, in, in Poland, according to various statistics, there, there were um, around one million or even more than one million people living. So it's like a huge potential that should be uh, untapped even more, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also a bit related to this, culturally, is it from your experience and also maybe there are best practices already or some research has been done on this. Um, we see now that the acceptance of Ukrainian refugees is much, much higher than it used to be in Europe in 2016, uh, 15 and 16. But also maybe if you look further down history, there have been always issues with um, the reception and the sort of uh, welcoming cult culture of refugees. And it looks, at least at the moment, as if this is um, now changing or it has changed for Ukrainians. Is this also what you have observed? Can you confirm this? And are there any indicators to consider um, when it comes to exception from the locals of the foreigners, so to speak, um, that one has to consider looking at, at this whole process uh, long term? 
um, I uh, I actually checked the most recent opinion polls about attitudes um, mm-hmm. to Ukrainian refugees. So actually, according to Ipsos uh, survey, around three quarters of respondents globally agree that that their country should take uh, in Ukrainian refugees. And agreement is high both in countries that experience huge uh, inflows mm-hmm. and those that do not observe many arrivals yet. So that's that's very interesting uh, compared to to previous uh, previous uh, situations, and 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 in, indeed the the question remains: uh, How long? Can we expect uh, such um, positive attitudes? But it's not only about attitudes, it's actually about action because it's uh, it's a really widespread mobilization of people, not only grassroots organizations. They are actually new grassroots movements that were created just to support this, this group. So I mentioned c- uh, uh, civil society, local authorities so it's it's very unique also because it's it doesn't concern just one country or one one region but it's it's a whole europe or even beyond yeah, just to echo what Justina was saying, I think um, this this support really does extend beyond beyond Europe. So looking looking globally, uh, Canada has been very quick to respond, offering a variety of different pathways for for people coming from Ukraine whether it's family reunification or community sponsorship, uh, coming to uh, emergency travel authorization. Um, in, in South America, Brazil and Argentina are offering humanitarian visas. The U.S. has created a new uh, temporary parole program. Um, and we see also Israel, Australia, New Zealand, a variety of different countries taking these steps um, I think much more quickly and also larger in scale and times um, than usual to, to welcome people as well. And again, um, a lot of these programs are mobilizing family and diaspora connections, also just public support. Uh, but again, here, the public support and whether it will, will last over time is something that, that we need to, to think about. And we'll see how, how that goes. Is this something that governments would have to invest into now, if you could make a suggestion, let's say? I think something that came up in our in our research for traffic, which again looked at networks, uh, found that this local networking was a really important strategy, whether it's among uh, refugees or between refugees and locals and in receiving communities. And um, finding spaces for interaction was something that really helped to build these relationships and to turn them from a passing interaction into a friendship or something that's that a tie that really was stronger. So I think um, it can be a variety of things from, you know, urban planning and finding ways that people interact more more frequently. Um, Or it can also be intentional programs such as education courses, dinner conversations, all these different things for governments and NGOs that that provide a space for people to to do something together, to learn together, to interact together and to build those relationships. And that all should be done within a complex holistic integration policies, because I mentioned already that that it's it's still an area that should be further developed in a number of countries because you you cannot uh, put everything on the shoulders of civil society or private c- citizens at some point, even for coordination reasons, authorities have to step in.
Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned um, education also is a means uh, for uh, integration. If we look uh, then again at the numbers of minors arriving, how do EU member states now tackle uh, the issue of uh, education of both children, but maybe also students? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very important question. Uh, School-aged children do make up a large share of people coming, um, as was mentioned, and they're arriving in the middle of the school year. So right now, uh, for instance, there are almost 200,000 Ukrainian children in Polish schools. Uh, so refugee children often face difficulty beyond simply doing their homework, including adjusting to a new school, dealing with language barriers, coping with trauma and navigating curriculum differences. Uh, and teachers can often use more training to address these challenges. So it includes registration in school, but it's definitely much more beyond this. So member states right now are, are enrolling children in um, mainstream education systems. So Poland, uh, for instance, is creating special classes for Ukrainian children to transition into Polish classrooms. And many countries are seeking to hire Ukrainian-speaking staff as well. I mentioned Lithuania's flexibility for Ukrainian teachers already, and in Poland, uh, Ukrainian teachers can work as teachers' assistants or multicultural assistants without needing to have their credentials recognized first, so that's important to scaling up services for Ukrainian-speaking students while they also learn the local language. It's also uh, interesting to see that some Ukrainian students in the EU are engaging in distance learning with educational institutions in Ukraine, and of course many of us have become familiar with remote learning during the pandemic. Uh, looking also at the youngest children who are not yet school age, early education and care can support language skills and other elements of children's development and school readiness. And these programs are also important for enabling mothers to take up a job. Is there enough space for everybody at this point? I, I can refer to, to the Polish case because this is the country I'm closely monitoring. So I would say that, yes, there, there is enough space, but... There is a still urgent need to improve or increase this targeted support, mm -hmm. and and this is what what uh, what uh, what is being done, for example, through uh, involvement of cultural assistance or assistance to to Polish teachers. But yeah, this this is a huge capacity issue. So I would say yes, everyone who is registered has a place at school but then what happens afterwards that's 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 the question mm -hmm. mark mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so are there any um initiatives already i mean you mentioned something was in the baltic states i think where ukrainians can work also as teachers and do you know of any other initiatives that concern uh, educational systems be it kindergarten or schools or universities where Ukrainians themselves are hired as sort of uh, bridge builders. I definitely think this is a strategy a lot of countries are looking at right now, how to uh, hire teachers with the needed language skills to be to be working with children before they're proficient in the local language. And I think here, um, those coming from Ukraine now, this year, um, in addition, I guess, to, to those who are already in these countries previously, uh, before the war, who speak Ukrainian, They're definitely being looked to 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 to, um, to take up these jobs, and I think uh, that's also why we see the flexibility with the credentials right now, um, because there is this this real interest in getting people working in schools as soon as possible. Okay, that sounds like a great opportunity. You also mentioned very briefly mental health. How important, or do you already have any estimations 
of how many people need uh, mental health support. Is this something that the um, hosting countries are looking at? And uh, yeah, do you have any info on this basically at this point? Sure. Well, I can speak, uh, I guess, generally to the issue of mental health and well-being, which, of course, is essential for when we talk about uh, displacement context. Uh, so with the invasion of Ukraine, people's lives were upended literally overnight. Um, as we saw in the headlines, the journeys that people are undertaking to leave Ukraine are arduous, uh, some waiting as many as you know, 60 hours in the freezing cold. Lines are many kilometers long, perhaps, to cross the border. Uh, and meanwhile, with most uh, men required to remain in Ukraine, as Justina mentioned, uh, families are separated and fearing for the safety of their loved ones. So these uh, very stressful situations are reasons why mental health and psychosocial support are a key component of humanitarian interventions and why they uh, should also be part of uh, integration approaches as well. Uh, so research actually suggests a bi-directional relationship between mental health and integration, meaning that uh, supporting mental health may also support integration trajectories. So while mental health is, of course, important in its own right, it can also support efforts to foster inclusion. But that's not to say that everyone will need professional mental health treatment. The majority of refugees do not. But it will be important to provide a sense of safety, welcoming, and support in receiving communities, uh, including meeting basic needs, which the Temporary Protection Directive, of course, aims to do. Uh, language classes, employment, and housing are also important here. And providing support in schools uh, and for parents as well as their children will also be useful approaches. Um, and of course, for those who, who will need more specialized mental health services, these must be available and accessible. Mm -hmm. And that is something that was challenging, uh, I would say, even before the pandemic and even before. If, if I may jump in, uh, the, the, the psychological support is, uh, interestingly, a part of one of our projects, a project in Poland that is now supporting uh, vulnerable uh, groups and of course almost all people coming from Ukraine belong to vulnerable groups so actually we our partners uh, in Poland have a network of therapists uh, mm -hmm. supporting people who, who are arriving and what do they report again do they have sufficient capacity to uh, serve uh, to the needs of the traumatized refugees It's, it's always a drop in, in the ocean. On, on one hand, of course, not everyone needs long-term therapy. It's, it's more like related to the crisis situation. And, and this, is, this is where these this, uh, psychologists are the most involved. But of course, there are more, uh, more difficult uh, cases. And, and there, of course, it's, it's not enough what uh, what is being done but it's 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 uh, it's i suppose not enough in any country because that's that's the type of support that i would not say is luxurious but um, it's difficult to to access Mm, I would say as accessing mental health services is can be challenging for the general population there's often um, not enough services to meet the need. Um, and that can be increasingly difficult um, for people who speak different languages or, or come from, from other places. Also related to this, when people are arriving and they are in those centers for refugees, do you think that they get sufficient information on where to access and how to proceed generally, how to set up their lives in the receiving country? Or do you think that This is some where there is some kind of gap still persisting that has to be closed uh, in terms of really information transfer. 
what uh, what we observe uh, right now is that many people actually connect connect with their networks networks of family and friends and they are the main source of uh, information however there is a growing number of people who uh, do not have any uh, any contacts in uh, uh, Europe, for example, and these people are then directed to the reception center, where um, information is is also provided. I would say there have been several efforts to kind of consolidate information, um, and I know the EU, for instance, has a. Uh, an information page where those leaving Ukraine or who have already left um, can find a lot of resources, not just about the directive, but about different organizations in different member states who are helping um, helping mm-hmm. people. Um, I would say also, you know, we mentioned already the public support that we've seen and the variety of initiatives, whether it's government-led NGOs, private citizens offering flats, etc. And it's really great, but at the same time, I think it can be difficult then to... Uh, consolidate all of this all of this great work in one place and I think that's the challenge first to to have this mapping of everything going on but also to make sure that the people who need to know do do know where to find the information mm-hmm. always a challenge one thing we haven't talked about yet at all is the financial situations uh, of refugees so not not all of the ones that arrive are necessarily rich not necessarily poor either, but also not not everybody necessarily has been to Europe before and knows how the European financial systems work. What are your observations on generally the topic of finances for refugees? Sure. So we've already covered uh, employment and and public services, public benefits that will be available to those with, with temporary protection. But I think, yes, like you mentioned, uh, access to personal financial resources is another part of the equation. And uh, we have seen, at least in the first uh, weeks of, of the conflict, these challenges that people were facing, uh, you, you converting uh, currency, their their currency into euros once they arrived in the EU. So, um, of course, that makes it difficult to settle in if, if you need to be able to afford various things that you need. Another, another uh, very specific challenge uh, that we see is that uh, it tends to be difficult in, in some countries to open bank account. And we know that nowadays you cannot function without a um, bank account. So, so I know that um, some uh, financial institutions are, are right now working on easing the access to, to the services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. At the very end, I have a rather speculative and personal question. What do you expect uh, culturally from Ukrainians who came now in masses to Europe? What kind of yeah, sort of cultural change or impact uh, do you expect the Ukrainians to make? I'm, uh, I'm uh, originally from Warsaw, Poland. And, uh, and, and my country used to be very, very homogeneous. Uh, so basically Pol- Poland for Polish people only. And for me, it's amazing how it's, uh, it has been changing recently with uh, uh, arrivals of from not only Ukraine, but also many other countries. So, so right now, for me, when I'm in Warsaw, I, I finally see that it's a, a multi-culti uh, city, and that's, that's amazing. Cool. And um, how about you, Caitlin? 
Yes, I think something similar coming from the U.S. I think I really value the the cultural, among other uh, contributions that that immigrants and refugees bring. Um, so I, I'm sure it will be the same here, and uh, looking forward to the the cultural richness that that will be added. Okay, let's hope so. Uh, at least uh, there's maybe some positive uh, outcome of this awful situation altogether. Thanks a lot, Caitlin and Justina, for being here with me. We learned a lot uh, about both challenges of refugees, the challenges of the EU, but also about, maybe surprisingly for some, the progress that has been made in comparison to other refugee situations that the EU has faced maybe in the last even uh, 10 or 15 years. So uh, this is um, overall not a, a bad um, improvement for the EU. As always, many thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Stay with us and uh, listen to our other podcasts. Follow us on social media and see you next time. Stay up to date on ICMPD's activities and visit our website icmpd.org, sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media.